Hi, this is presenter Crystal Dinapoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. Before I dive too far into the show, I do want to start off by acknowledging that Triple R is broadcasting out from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Uh, If you're out and about in Wurundjeri country at the moment, um, I really, I think I want to try and uh, talk a bit more about traditional seasons, I think, across this year and try and keep up with Kulin Nation calendars. For me, um, I feel like this is something I have no excuse as to why I haven't really done sooner. So I know a little bit about... uh, some of the traditional seasonal calendars we have, um, and they're way more applicable <laughs> to, to what we actually experience here in Melbourne, especially Melbourne or Nam, that gets such a reputation for being this unpredictable place. And it's because we're trying to put Eurocentric uh, seasons onto uh, a non-Eurocentric country, right? So we're a very specific type of climate. And so at the moment, I just want to acknowledge that we are in the local season of Bitterrap. Um, and one of the beautiful things that we are seeing at the moment is an abundance of butterflies. And so I would encourage you all to go out, maybe go uh, butterfly spotting or butterfly gazing, bird watching. You know, we, we, got, we could start something here with the butterflies. Anyway, today's guest, I'm very, very excited that we're going to be speaking with a scientist today. We have coming in Dr. Katrina Ruck, who is from the Maboyer Lug First Nations of Torres Strait Islands area. Um, I hope I pronounced that okay. Uh, this is a challenging word for me. So Maboyer Lug, it's a beautiful country. I do, um, I'm somewhat familiar with some of their astronomy and it's just uh, some of the coolest stuff I think in, our, in, in the area of sky knowledge comes from that island. So Katrina's coming in um, to chat to us. She's an early career researcher or a postdoctoral uh, research fellow um, with a focus on finding innovative and green solutions for industrial problems. So her cross-disciplinary research encompasses knowledge from the fields of industrial chemistry, process engineering, and material science. So this is a, definitely an area that I'm not super familiar with, and I'm very excited to learn about some of the deadly work that she's doing, and also to talk to her about how she got there, um, what her pathway was like, and also why she's so passionate about uh, uh, focusing on STEM outreach and advocating for uh, more Indigenous people in STEM. I'm super excited uh, to have this conversation today. Uh, I know I'm going to be learning a lot of new things. It's always fun for me when someone comes in with uh, a bio and, and research topics that I immediately need to start dissecting the terminology of. So this is an exciting chance for a learning journey. We were going to be speaking with Dr. Katrina Ruck, who is from the Mabuig Yulug uh, First Nation from Mabuag Island. And I apologize. I'm doing my <laughs> best. I get a little tongue-tied. Um, but this is such a cool place. I have um, learned a bit over time about some of their cool astronomy uh, that they've that their this astronomy practices that they have and their sky knowledge and it's just absolutely gorgeous um, so on that note continuing Katrina is a uh, early career researcher with a passion for finding innovative green solutions for industrial problems her cross-disciplinary research encompasses knowledge from the fields of industrial chemistry process engineering and material science which she uses to de- deliver high-tech green chemistry based solutions for the transition to cleaner absorption technologies. That's a lot of information there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a 
Alongside her research, Katrina is also a passionate advocate for STEM outreach, impacting thousands of students through various outreach programs, teaching opportunities, and community involvement. Katrina, welcome to Indigenuity. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's nice to meet you in person. Um, I'm very excited. Both you and I are uh, ambassadors, I guess, for Deadly Science in the upcoming Formula One events. Um, And as soon as I uh, (laughs) got to hear about some of the stuff that you get up to, I'm like, I need to chat. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I could talk for so long about what I do because I'm I'm really excited about what I do. I love what I do. It's awesome. You can tell that as well, like the passion and like the, the, just the love that comes um, for your study. And so for me, it's really exciting to hear a bit about how you got there as well. And on Indigenuity, and especially same for myself, right? Like when I was pursuing um, university, very big, um, scary, sort of unknown first in my family. And I took a different route to get there as well. And so I think it's great to chat to our, like have these conversations in front of our listeners, um, with all the deadly people who've come onto the show and have their own way of getting to where they went. And so I was just wondering if maybe we could start off with you telling us a bit about what was your journey towards this pursuit of science? Yeah, totally. Um, well, I, I don't really know where to start. Uh, start, I guess. <laughs> you start as early as you like to. I mean, for me, it's you know, it started yeah, under yeah, yeah. stars when I was like, you know, five or something. Totally. <laughs> I guess I've just always been innately fascinated in learning how things work. I just always asking like, why? But but why? why how do we know that? And then just questioning um, to the you know uh, annoyance of probably uh, my parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think I realised at some point in school that I just. I really, really liked um, chemistry. Um, we had a really great chemistry teacher, and I think that was probably one of the driving things, right, when you have a teacher who actually... Um, cares, right? Yeah, and- ca- cares, and is willing to put in that extra effort to make sure that you are getting the understanding that you want. Um, yeah, yeah, so that was really, really, really good. No, that's awesome. It, it, it definitely is important, I think, to have, um, you know... It, it- really engaging teachers as well as supportive teachers. And so for for you, was this something that, you know, finding an interest with your science teacher, making things sounding interesting and wanting to pursue it further? Yeah, and it was a problem-solving aspect. Um, I, initially, I really liked organic chemistry. Um, you'd have these molecules and you'd have to name them using the IUPAC mm. um, naming um, system. And it was just a really fun puzzle to solve. And I remember doing so well in this exam that I... Um, I like topped the exam and I was like, wow, like maybe, maybe I can do it. Um, and I went to like every single extra class thing cause I was just really interested in it. And, and then from there I decided to put that down as my, um, my preference for uni. It was just bachelor of science, yeah. applied science. Yeah. Excellent. And like you mentioned some terms already and I'm sorry, I won't do this too much cause I know we'll probably, I'll probably bulk down, um, the interview more, uh, by doing so, but you mentioned like organic chemistry. Yeah. So like what, what do we mean by like organic in that context for that sort of branch of chemistry? Yeah. Yeah. So organic chemistry is essentially anything with carbon. Um, a lot of, uh, living organisms are, you know, it's to do with carbon. We're carbon-based beings, mm. um, and so is, you know, most of the life on Earth. Um, yeah, so anything that is not living, essentially, is inorganic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So it's like that really, I guess, like sort of natural side of chemistry that you um, that you had to focus on back then, right? Yeah, yeah. And so what was the next steps for you for uni? Was it something that was, like, close to home, or did it involve, um, you know, uh, you having to make a, a bit of a, an adventure to your next step? Yeah, no, I had to make uh, a bit of an adventure. So I um, started uni in February uh, and I did the commute from the Gold Coast, the southern end of the Gold Coast, so Varsity Lakes, which is literally the end of the line 
um, all the way to Brisbane. And there wasn't a bus that would take me from my house to the train station. So I'd wake up at 5.30 in the morning and it was dark and I would walk to the train station, which took 45 minutes, get on the train for an hour and 15 minutes and then walk over the bridge, which took another 15 minutes. So all around the trip was like four hours just to get to uni from my family house. So I was like, this isn't sustainable. So by April, I'd had enough. And I, <laughs> I moved out. <laughs> I was 17. Look, it makes sense, to be <laughs> honest. It sounded like probably adding a bit more to your day than just what studying would already take. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, it was pretty pretty interesting, you know, living out of home and being underage and um, having to sign leases and things, mm. you know. It was, yeah, very, very challenging time, but it was full of learning opportunities, you know? Yeah, so what was that experience like then? So um, when you finally got to study, like, was it was it immediately like whatever you'd chosen in your first, sort of first semester ended up being what you followed through with? So you, you start off doing these kind of general science subjects and then you can kind of specialise uh, in your second year. Um, I already knew I wanted to do chemistry. Yeah, yeah. But in, in retrospect, uh, I should have done chemical engineering. So what's the, disti- like, the difference there between, like, chemistry yeah. versus chemical engineering? Chemistry is... Well, pure chemistry is um, essentially looking at reactions and the rates of reactions and energy and um, doing calculations for those reactions. But chemical engineering is applying that, but on a huge scale, how to scale up, how to make um, plastic from petrol kind of thing. Yeah. And and how to purify water. and, And that's just something that you don't really do in chemistry itself. Yeah, wow. And so for you then, so um, you've you studied your uh, your bachelor, mm. but you've gone on to do further research. What was the sort of steps that you took there? Did you have abilities to conduct research during your undergrad or was it that experience um, afterwards where you sort of delving in, you started delving in a bit deeper? Yeah, so I guess I was uh, pretty lucky. Uh, you get to do a research project at the end of your third year, um, your last year of uni. Uh, and I had an amazing opportunity to work on this uh, project with Gilmore Space Corporation. So they're a space company operating out of Pimpama on the Gold Coast, or near the Gold Coast. Um, and that was that was really great. I was working in the lab with these catalysts for this rocket, and wow. I was figuring out how to activate them, and I got to go into their offices, and, yeah, it was wild. So they're developing lightweight rockets for satellites. Um, we all have phones, right? Yeah. And they all need to be connected, so we need all these satellites to connect uh, you know, enhance the connectivity between all of us. Yeah, legend. Our phones. So they're looking at greener ways of launching these satellites. So one of the things I was doing was developing this catalyst. And, like, what, what, what did you gain from that experience? Was it good insight that, like, yes, this is the thing that I want to keep doing? Yeah, I was, it was just more about um, how to do research. And then I remember the first time I saw a scanning electron microscope image which essentially is a microscope, but it's looking down um, at very, 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 very high magnifications. And I was looking at the surface image, and it was just amazing. It was very fascinating because you can't see that with the naked eye. It's um, many, many, many times what we can see. Yeah, wow. So the very, very small scales, right? Yeah. It's just fascinating how what happens at the nanoscale and the microscale translates, the properties translate into the macroscale too. Yeah. God, I, I, 
Yeah, this is something that blows my mind a bit on the regular because, like, when it comes to astrophysics, we deal with, like, the very big and also the very small. And when things get a little bit too small for me to see, I start having problems. <laughs> yeah, like, it's hard to just um, to fathom things that are outside the scale of what normal humans, like, operate with. Yeah, yeah, totally. Same with, like, I find with, like, when we talk about, like, time, right, and we have some very long legs of time and also very small ones. And it's hard to imagine reactions that happen on, like, a nanosecond when, you know. Anyway, I'll totally. die. <laughs> I'm getting a little bit too sort of uh, philosophical philosophical over uh, <laughs> these concepts um but so then what I guess then what became your main focus then as you sort of headed into a PhD well I realized that I didn't actually want to do uh organic chemistry uh I didn't mention this earlier but I worked in an organic chemistry lab I was making these novel indoline nitroxides uh which is a specific type of chemical they're used for cancer research oh. essentially in Alzheimer's I was making them in the lab And the thing about research is that you can be the first person to make something or the first person to discover something and then you get to tell everyone about it and then you get to write papers about it. Uh, But through the experience of doing the organic chemistry, I realised that that actually wasn't what I wanted to do. So I moved into industrial chemistry, which is more about applications and solving the industrial problems. Oh, okay. And so... um... And that has, like, continued to be a focus then for you post sort of, like, PhD as well, that idea of, like, green solutions to industrial problems? Absolutely. And now I find myself not so much even in the chemistry space. Now I'm in the chemical engineering space, but I'm not formally trained as an engineer. So doing a PhD actually enables you the skills to be able to go into another discipline. Yeah, excellent. So you didn't need to, like, go back and do a Bachelor of Engineering or anything, but you're able to continue to adapt. Yeah, that's right. Uh... I have thought of going back and doing a master's of chemical engineering, but I've already studied for 10 years. I kind of feel like I deserve a, <laughs> deserve to earn some money at this point. <laughs> Sorry, that's so relatable as like a PERMA student as well. Um, so totally understand. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We are now back with our conversation with Dr. Katrina Ruck. So Dr. Katrina um, focuses uh, in the area of chemical engineering um, and industrial chemistry. So we're learning a lot of new terms today and learning a bit about some of the cool uh, research that she's been doing. Uh, I wanted to, uh, I guess, like take us back to that. I focus on the journey that you've had so far. Um, I guess you've had, uh, you know, some important decisions you've had to make. You've had inspiration pulled um, from, you know, what you were interested in as a kid now leading on to post-PhD sort of focus. Um, Was there anything that you learnt through that experience that you think is important to talk about? Um, uh, Any sort of, like, I guess, advice as well for any blackfellas who may be considering studying science? Yeah, definitely. So um, I think my experience through schooling is not unique. I think a lot of people have had a pretty rough time in school Um, and it was down to the fact that I was like different to everyone else growing up you know in the Gold Coast it was predominantly a white school um, and I always knew I was different Mm. and that's okay but I didn't realize that I was like neurodivergent and I think that was we didn't have the education back then, like parents and teachers didn't have that education to know it and to, to see a student who was struggling and identify that and give them the extra help that they might need. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so what happened was I was uh, in year two and I was learning to read 
and all the other students were kind of learning pretty quickly and I was like not just not getting it I guess mm. so the parent like the teachers pulled my parents aside or pulled got, went in for like a meeting or something and um they were like, yeah, so Katrina, she's not she's not doing so great at reading. You know, we just don't think she'll be a great reader. Um, in fact, we don't think she'll ever read. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah, they totally gave up on me. They were like, it's not it's not going to happen. So my parents uh, pulled me out of that school and put me in a different one. So that was good. That's a good first step. Yeah. And um, guess what? I learned to read. So, <laughs> so it comes down to... What, what, do, what do you think it came down to there for you? Um, I... I don't know. I, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure. I I can barely remember it at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's reaching far back, but I guess it does show you to how, because I, I I did experience like a similar, uh, unfortunately like a similar oh, experience, I'm right? Sorry. No, no, but it's <laughs> but it's so relatable, and I'm so I'm so aware of how um, unfortunately like having the wrong teacher in the wrong place who can be dismissive can lead to massive problems, and how wonderful for your parents to. You know, in a situation where teachers were sort of going, hey, it's a bit of a, a sort of a useless situation, right? And we're looking at something pretty dire. They removed you, put you into a place that was clearly a bit more um, supportive of your mm. learning. Mm. Um, but that must have been a very tough experience, being neurodivergent, undiagnosed, and then dealing yeah. with those experiences in the classroom. Totally. And I'm still undiagnosed. I think we all know that research traditionally has not been conducted on women. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, mirroring and you know all of these ADHD maybe autistic things that we should know about we we actually didn't know about so um now as an adult I'm looking into it a bit more and I'm like wow yeah so I'm definitely neurodivergent but it's a scale right so I could be anywhere on that scale but it just it's great to know that it wasn't because I wasn't trying hard enough I was giving it my effort it was just the way I was being taught wasn't quite right for me yeah absolutely yeah. I, there's definitely also I think from when we were a bit younger as well and I, I don't know if it's still the same case but I know there was like a little bit of a, a stigma a little bit's putting it mildly I think with um <laughs> neurodivergent children whether you get them diagnosed whether it's no they're just a little bit excited or whatever and we focus on other things and so it leads to a lot of um I guess lack of awareness mm. and lack of recognition now in th- this day and age and then also the focus on how those present in males instead of in females so I have mm. a lot of women friends with ADHD or autism all diagnosed quite later and have spoken about that idea of masking and trying to adapt to cope how did that impact I guess like the rest of your experiences at school um I guess being a neurodivergent student uh, and pursuing science uh I think well I actually vividly remember my mum saying this she just said it doesn't matter if you don't get a good grade just get an A for effort just try your best oh cool so that's kind of what I did right um, and I did that for a little while and I, I feel like by the time I got to year 10, I, I was kind of not being challenged enough in my schooling, mm. um, which, which led me to, you know, wag school, which is like just to leave school and when you're meant to be there. Um, and what I would do is I would go sit at the university down the road, uh, and pretend I was a student, essentially. <laughs> so, because I was so keen to get out of school, I was like, "I'm done with this." I love so, that. manifesting your science career. It was really, yeah, it's kind of. I don't know. Looking back now, I'm like, what was I doing anyway? <laughs> I just really didn't want to be in school anymore. Um, part of the reason, as well, is because when I was in year ten, you had to do subject selection for the following year for your senior stuff, mm. and. Uh, we had back then math A, math B, math C, 
so math A was like the the standard math, and then it progressively got harder with B's with math B and then math C. So I put down that I wanted to do math B, um, and they pulled me into the office and they're like, you know what? I don't think you can do it. You you, you we're going to put you in math A, the easy math. And Classic. I was yeah. So I, I had the same experience, but oh way. my gosh, what? <laughs> oh, yeah, they t- <laughs> similar things, and it's so funny because it impacted my ability to study physics. Um, and maths, and I became an astrophysicist. <laughs> so yeah. all I did was make uni harder. But yeah, sorry, I just I understand also, especially I don't know, like that that other element as well of um, being recognised as like an Aboriginal student and then being treated yeah. differently, right? So I, I, I apologise, but I do no, no, you say things and it's like I know. No, don't apologise. This is great. This is so it's so 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 nice to hear. So, not nice, obviously, but it's later later on now. Now it's mm. great to know that other people had the same experience but yeah so they were like nah you can't do it and I'm like well that sucks so I did, did math a and then I uh, I did really well in the exam so they had to put me up so awesome. <laughs> it was like ticket to the yeah anyway that's brilliant so I did math b and I did really well so yeah. uh but I didn't do math c which I should have done, and I didn't do physics, and I didn't do engineering. All I did was chemistry, biology, uh, economics, and accounting, and then just engineering. I'm sorry, English and math B. But if I was to go back and do it again, I would have done the harder subjects. There was just no push. There was no drive. It was like they just told me straight up, we don't think you can do it, and I was clearly just different. Yeah. And, And yeah, sad. I know it's like probably like a, a silly sort of question or whatever, but um, you know, if, if there's anyone listening here who does actually relate to this, maybe they are in high school and they have sort mm. of similar feelings. Is there anything that you would say to them or sort of recommend to them about that experience that maybe you, upon reflection, like you've said, you would have just gone and enrolled yourself in those harder subjects anyway? Yeah. Um, but do you have any advice, I guess, to maybe neurodivergence, blackfellow students, or anyone who are sort of in a similar position? Yeah, totally. Um, I would say stand your ground. Like, if you think something isn't right, it probably isn't right, you know, and there are support people in your school. Um, hopefully they're culturally appropriate, you know, for mm. your to support you um, that can advocate for you. Yeah. And stand your ground, and if you think something isn't right, speak up. Definitely you speak up You have to speak too. up. Yeah, questioning that, like, questioning authority, I think, is, like, a great lesson to learn at some point, um, which I, I feel like we're not told early enough. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> so moving into, I guess, like the nitty gritty about your research. Mm. Um, so you work with some, you work on some pretty cool things. You have done a range of different research projects over yeah. time, whether that be your PhD, anything you've done post then. Um, could you tell us a bit about some of the cool science that you're, you're working on through that research? Yeah, totally. So I guess I'll start with my PhD research. Um, essentially, I thought it was going to take three years. Mm. But what actually happened was uh, I started, nothing worked for a year. And then things started working, great, but then COVID happened. So they uh, locked our labs down and it was, you know, it was a a challenge. But you know what, through it, it taught me so much about resilience. Um, But what did I actually discover? Well, I was working with uh, a mining waste material. Essentially, when people are mining a material called zeolite, it's something that's naturally formed when we had volcanoes way back in the dinosaur era kind of thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. the volcanoes would erupt and then the ash would fall into lakes. And then over time, pressure and temperature would change it into something called a zeolite. 
So people mine that uh, for many, many different uses, like cosmetics and paper and um, swimming pool filters. Mm. Um, But when they're crushing the zeolite to different sizes, they make a dust, and that dust is kind of hazardous, so you don't really want to breathe it in, like, uh, yeah, so I, I took that dust and I was like, okay, what can I do with it? I need to work work with this somehow. Um, and I figured out a way to turn it into um, the main ingredient in laundry detergent. Wow. Okay, that's so exciting. So you've taken a what seems to be like a waste product and mm. you've given it a new life, a new... Totally, yeah. Going into that uh, circular economy um, kind of thing. And I discovered it totally by accident. I was actually doing some calculations, right? Um and I messed up the calculation and I did the experiment um, anyway, but I actually figured out a new way to do it and that is now um, possibly getting patented. So that's really, really cool. That is surreal. I love that um, you accidentally <laughs> accidentally discovered this through calculations that weren't working out and then finding a new way to do it. Yeah, totally, totally. I think um, part of my innate curiosity of things is like questioning just because the other research papers do it this way, they haven't actually tried to do it another way. They're just kind of quoting the person who did it before them mm. and then they haven't actually tried to switch it up. So that was kind of cool. And uh, <laughs> uh, when my thesis uh, was going through the review process with other academics um, after I submitted it, they when they gave it back to me, they were like, well, actually, both of your examiners have nominated your thesis for the Outstanding Doctoral Thesis oh Award. My God. So I was like, wow, I actually... It was very it was very nice to know that it wasn't um, complete garbage because, you know, you're writing this thing at, like, <laughs> weird hours, 2 a.m. in the morning, and you're tired and you're done, and you're on the weekends and on Christmas, and, you know, you think it could be total garbage. And then it's just so validating to know that it's... It was it was actually okay, and people like thought it was all right. That's I mean, it sounds like such an incredible like it, the science sounds incredible. The the value that it provides, I think, is just uh, unmeasurable. Especially for like mining industry, clearly like a a concern, especially when it comes to like ecological health and also waste products that are left behind. I you know I, I to me this this is such an awesome idea, and then also like I guess to be recognised for your actual your actual thesis for, for our listeners who may not uh, be as familiar with what goes into a PhD, like how many pages, for example, would have went into that two thirty AM writing sort of thesis thesis that you would have produced at the end? Uh, at the end, it was about around two hundred and fifty pages, yeah, wow. and it's not a light read at all. No, I can't it's, imagine it would be. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine your thesis uh, will not be a light read either. <laughs> Wow, that's well. Congratulations, at least um, for for the work that you've done through that, for the potential future steps that you'll be taking with that knowledge as well. And and so, did this spike uh, or spark and like a, an interest in you in sort of continuing in this area, looking at green solutions, industrial problems? Yeah, totally. I think um, once I realised I, I had something um, of value, I I was looking into. I've been researching other mining practices and trying to figure out how maybe we can go into greener options. But the thing is, is that you're battling these major corporations who may not want the greener way because Mm. it's not as profitable. Mm. So it's tricky. The balance between having something green and something that's still profitable is, is tricky because, you know, you may have to pay more. Yeah. You may have to make less profit, but it's the more ethical thing to do. 
So I really question a lot of the practices that yeah. that is happening that all, must, all the time. It must be very difficult. Um, you know, I guess in Australia, I mean, I can't comment. So don't anyone listening, don't take me like, you know, take it with a little pinch of salt, right? But from what I've seen, what I've experienced, you know, that, um, you know, the funding sort of going towards projects that are more profitable versus the types of science that we need conducted. And I guess you've, you're in a position where you have to sort of dance between the two and I guess make the mm. best out of a situation where I guess like a lot of the focus is something that drives profits mm. and you're looking at, okay, well, how can we like harm reduce what we're creating as well? So totally. And leaning into circular economy, which mm. is essentially thinking about what you're using to make it in the first place. And then how is that recycled? How is it fed back into the loop so that you're not creating more waste yeah yeah and and what are you focusing on at the moment with your research so at the moment i'm focusing on uh forever chemicals um for the listeners who aren't familiar there is the the big word is uh perfluoroalkyl substances essentially they are uh, organic molecules so with the carbon Mm. carbon backbone and they have fluoride attached to the carbon now, the carbon fluoride bond is one of the strongest bonds we have on on Earth that we know of. Wow, yeah. So really, really, really hard to break them apart. And what happens is we make them and they just cycle through the world and they don't ever break down. So we need special technologies to essentially destroy these chemicals that we've made because they just don't break down at all. So they found a very specific type of fungi that can eat it and they found a very specific type of bacteria that can eat it but otherwise it's they kind of just cycle around yeah wow and so then what would be the focus for you in um these forever chemicals and what you're trying to achieve with something that doesn't break as easy uh it's interesting that you mentioned bio biological uh processes that we have that sort of naturally occur that can break them down like mentioning yeah. the fungi in that yeah, yeah, it's, it's really it's really buzzy but um yeah i think the, the problem with having these like biological um things is that if we wanted to treat let's say Antarctica which is who I'm doing the research for right is for the Australian Antarctic Division um you can't bring foreign fungi and bacteria to Antarctica yeah of course because it's so fragile you know so yes it can be used maybe on mainland Australia but when it comes to Antarctica we we really have to think of a a different technology that's safer yeah like really protect that ecosystem yeah yeah totally um and the distribution of PFAS in the world is uh, so widespread. So what happens is uh, PFAS is found in many, many, many different products. Like uh, I'm going to rattle a few off here. Mm. We've got nonstick pans, waterproof mascara. Most um, food packaging has PFAS. So things like coconut water, the the lining in between like the cardboard and the the liquid is PFAS in the in tins. The, in, the lining is PFAS and waterproof mascara. There's a lot of cosmetics that have PFAS in them. Um, they're known to cause cancer and infertility. Um, and probably the most publicised uh, PFAS uh, thing out there is actually in firefighting foam. So it's great, a great fire retardant. Yeah. But it's not so great when it rains and then that foam gets washed into the ocean and the waterways. Uh, wow. So what happens is the PFAS settles in the sediment and then you get these uh, tiny organisms that will consume it uh, by, by accident and then 
some larger fish will eat that and then a larger fish will eat that and then we will catch that fish and then we will eat it. So now we are contaminated. That's a bit, um, I guess, like I, I would assume, hopefully, like, I, I don't know, it depends how much faith you have in our system here in Australia, yeah. but like that's shocking to me, right, to hear about how commonly used the forever chemicals are when, of course, we know like they're hard mm. to break down, but also that they are like carcinogenic, like cancer-causing and yeah. toxic. Yeah, and so they're in our food products. Is uh, this is like a random question, so don't yeah. worry if you don't have the answers, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just my curiosity. But, like, is there an alternative that does exist for yes. certain forever chemicals? Yep, totally. Oh, interesting. Is it just not an economical? <laughs> no, I I think it comes down to cost, Yeah, honestly. Uh, and I think that people have a lot of power as well. If people knew about this, maybe they would be able to... Boy, like boycott or stop buying those products that are containing PFAS. Mm. But to do that, you have to know about it. Mm. And products that do contain PFAS are not necessarily labelled that they do. Yeah. In fact, I don't think that they are. Don't quote me on that. But if you look on your waterproof mascara, it's not going to say this contains PFAS. Wow. That's... Necessarily. Or they might have a different name for it yeah, or something a... like that. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I haven't looked into that so much. But it's not essentially as obvious on any of the packaging or messaging or even just in, like, public discourse that yeah. these things are abundant and toxic, which is quite shocking. Yeah, yeah. And I mentioned that it ends up in Antarctica. Mm. Um, and it's it's in places that humans haven't actually been yet. So, and the way it gets there is, I mentioned it ends up in the waterways, right? But... When waves are created, it creates foam and it also creates aerosols. The PFAS bonds to these aerosols and then it is taken up into the atmosphere, into clouds, and then it's blown away many, many, many distance, like many kilometres away, and then it might rain or something and then the PFAS falls out of the sky. Oh. So that's how it's getting to Antarctica. I see, yep. So it's bioaccumulated in animals in Antarctica. Interesting, yep. And in the Arctic and all the other remote places you can think of. How shocking to, for you to be talking about places that humans haven't really explored yet, right, And or haven't touched or been to, and we're leaving this potentially just permanent mark of yeah. poison. Yeah. And so you mentioned that there are other, um, uh, so other mechanics for possibly getting rid of the forever chemicals. Is there anything that you can share with us about what mm. one of those might be? Yeah, absolutely. So this one I'm developing is for the Antarctic Division, and it's because it doesn't require the fungi and the bacteria, right? So it actually uses electricity and electrodes to start a chemical reaction. Um, it's a pretty special chemical reaction. It's called electrofenton. Um, and what happens is you run electricity through a circuit and there's an anode and a cathode. And what happens is I create these super, super reactive, excited molecules and they just kind of um, run around and, like, bump into things. And then when they bump into things, they actually break it apart. Oh, cool. <laughs> so it's called mineralization. If you can imagine a long chain of PFAS, these excited molecules are bumping into it and breaking apart these carbon fluoride bonds. Wow. Um, and we need these special molecules because they have enough energy to break that bond. Because yep. like I was saying, it's one of the strongest bonds we have. Yeah, wow. So, and, and that yeah. intersection of, I guess, working with like electricity <laughs> and chemistry. So is this uh, a thing for you where um, you've learned about it through your study or is this sort of like merging two different sort of schools of thought to solve a problem? Yeah, so uh, I, I did learn a little bit of electrochemistry through my, my chemistry degree, uh, but it wasn't a specialty of mine. So I've had to actually learn um, 
electrochemistry again and then learn more stuff and I've also had to learn chemical engineering because like I said I only did chemistry so through the course of my PhD and postdoc I've got to learn all these other skills I got to learn how the electricity works with chemistry and yeah how to design these things in like a continuous system that could be off-grid that's that's the plan. Yeah, excellent. So the, the learning never stops. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. And I, I feel like this technology would be really useful for everyday people, right? With rainwater, people drinking rainwater. Yeah. Because um, it, it should be treated. Yeah, especially knowing, like, I guess we'd think of rain as this beautiful sort of pure thing that's falling down. To know it's tainted with forever chemicals is... Is, a, is something to be aware of and is a shame, actually, um, but mm. at least you're working on solutions. What what would be the next steps for you then, I guess, you know, either this year or just in general with your career for your research? Um, I'd really like to stay in academia. I I really just love the, the idea of answering these questions that we don't have answers to and being the first person to discover this new way of doing something. It's something innately satisfying about it yeah but then there's the opportunity to talk about it which is really really great because I feel like people need to people are interested and people need to know about this and I I have such great conversations all the time with um with people about what I'm doing and um I really I really like talking to students about it too because it it really excites them you know that this is something that they might be able to consider yeah, so is this your motivation for, like, why you focus so much on outreach um, and science communication as long alongside your research as well? I think I focus on it so much is because uh, I didn't have any of it mm. and I don't want anyone else to have to go through that. At our school, all we had the... So you have people come, you know, maybe you have science communicators or something. We didn't have any of that. All we had was the army come and try and recruit us oh, for the army or like the defense force, which is fine. But like, it needs to be a bit of a mixture, right? It yeah, was you just, want some diversity. It in was the, very much yeah. just like, come for the defense force. Mm. No, I understand. Yeah. I understand. <laughs> like, um, I, I do really um, spend a lot of time on uh, doing, I mean, of course, right, outreach, because you and I, are, we met <laughs> yeah. because we're both about to do yeah. a lot of outreach. Um, but it, I think it is important. It does make it easier to sometimes see the pathway to somewhere when you've seen someone that you can relate to who's achieved that as well. And so for, I guess, a lot of students coming through and you're being very honest about what your experiences were for school, what the cool stuff you get to do now, I assume it's very impactful for them to be able to start to visualise, well, you know, I don't have to be, like, you know, the, the number one in the class or the time I can do science it belongs to us all yeah and and that's just the thing right I I was never really the top of the class except for that one exam um (laughs) really good exam to do too (laughs) yeah so (laughs) and I think people need to just uh like I I really love students to understand that you don't have to be the best you Mm -hmm. just have to try and just work towards it you know little little steps make big steps right uh but what you said before about um, you know, talking to students and inspiring them, totally. And it's also kind of heartbreaking. So there was one one time when uh, uh, I was doing some outreach in far north Queensland, so um, up Cairnsway and in this vale, and there were two boys who came up to me after my workshop and they were like, Miss, Miss, like, um, you're the first, like, Indigenous scientist I've ever met. Oh, wow. And they were like, we don't, we don't think we can do it. Like, what do you reckon? And I was like, no, you can do it. You can do anything you want to do. You've just got to work for it. And and that was just heartbreaking because they didn't, they'd never met a, you know, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander scientist before. 
and they couldn't see it in them for themselves. So I, I really want wanted them to know that they they could do it if they wanted to. Yeah. It's important to have those moments, um, and I think prioritising outreach as well as doing um, research just seems like a very natural path for you. And also what you're saying as well about, like, people need to know. Like, you've you've spoken about some stuff today, especially with the forever chemicals, how abundant they are, the type of damage they can do. Um, that's very important for people to know, and clearly it's not getting discussed enough in, like, mainstream media. And so it comes down to science communicators like yourself to create those discussions and to make people aware. And I feel like there's definitely got to be at least one listener right now who's probably con- looking at their cosmetics and just sort of considering like hey what am i what am i putting on my body you know totally yeah well uh katrina is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up today um oh just one more thing i think um i'm going to science meets parliament <gasps> congratulations how thank exciting you. thank you so you're familiar with it i'm familiar with it yes okay. i'm um, so i'm very excited for you but feel free to explain a bit more for our listeners yeah well, I'm actually not really sure what I'm in, in for. Maybe you know more than no, me. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. <laughs> okay. I almost, uh, almost attended in previous years, and I, it's something I look forward to in the future. But I'm, I'm quite young in my academic journey in comparison to what you've achieved so far. So um, you're, uh, for me, it's a little long, while longer. Um, you're going to have to be the one out of the two of us to experience it uh, and maybe report back to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So uh, from what I understand um, is that a group of academics from all over Australia. I'm pretty sure it's just Australia. And we go to Canberra to Parliament House and we get to talk to parliamentarians. And there's uh, a great two-way conversation, right, where the scientists get to talk to the parliamentarians about their science and possibly educate and make connections with them to inform policy. And then the parliamentarians get to hear about the awesome stuff that, you know, uh, our STEM professionals are doing. That's so exciting. That's a great moment for you, I guess, to be able to have a voice uh, and to, to participate in some exciting, hopefully fruitful discussions as well at Parliament. So congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And then um, when I get back from Canberra the next day is the, the F1 thing with oh, really? Deadly Science. So it's a very busy week. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how much we... <laughs> I should have checked beforehand with Deadly Science what we can discuss because, like, I don't know now whether I should promo it or whether it's, like, embargoed and they'll do their own oh, stuff. Look, okay. they, can, they can let me know if I'm in trouble. Um, but I do look forward to seeing you again after today. And thank you so much for all of your time. I've learned a lot from you. I hope our listeners have as well. Um, and we can't wait to see what you continue to do. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.